Welcome, everybody. Okay. In that case, the introverts are going to hate this. I'm sorry, but I gave everybody a chance just to say welcome and how are you. If you would, please turn to the person next to you and say, I am glad you are here. I'm glad you are here. I'm, I'm glad you are here, Chris. Thank you. That's what happens when you don't bring the preacher up to raise a hallelujah. <laughs> That's what it is. It's all the song choice, man. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Wow, Ben. It is welcome. one of those days. Hey, we are glad to have you here this morning. We are glad that you have gotten up. We are glad that you have made the trip. We are glad that you have been a part of what we have been doing already today. And we are looking forward, of course, to next weekend where we get to uh, be together. And uh, if you are already out for break and uh, going to be spending some time with family because you're out of school or maybe you have an extended holiday time, uh, just ask for safety for that. Enjoy the time that you're going to be spending with family and friends and just enjoy this, um, this great time this great time of year. We are on the road to resurrection, not just because Easter is uh, coming up next weekend, but it's because we walk this road with Jesus, and it is the road that we live each and every day, because our lives are meant to be resurrected lives, and our lives are meant to be changed, and our lives are meant to be different. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been walking with Jesus, just looking at his mindset and seeing what he was focused on as he walked to the city that was covered in the shadow of the cross. And so we come to our fourth lesson that we've had in this series, and the Passover meal is now complete. Jesus and his disciples have walked outside of Jerusalem. They've gone toward an olive grove that's called Gethsemane. Fitting that he was there because it was one of his favorite places. And Gethsemane itself means an oil press, and it was here where olives would be squeezed. Yet on this particular night, it would not be the olives that would have the pressure applied to them. It would be the Son of God. as He would be looking to the next 24 hours, and just around the corner, he would be arrested. He would be tried. He would be convicted. He would be sentenced to death. And so we look at this to discover how does Jesus fill his final moments? What does he do? And I'm telling you, you might be surprised. You see, he had spent the last three years, he spent the last three years speaking to his followers about his father. But now with the cross on the horizon, he chose to spend his last hours of freedom speaking to his father about his followers. Does that surprise anybody? Did you expect Jesus to go and preach one final sermon? Did you expect to find him walking around looking for someone who was lame or, or blind, wanting to heal? Uh, maybe you were expecting that there would be something that would happen that was great and, and miraculous. He would go and find a child that needed to be given back to their parents because they had died. But Jesus doesn't do what we had expected him to do. And so because of that, I think, we hurry past this particular moment in Scripture and we dash ahead to get our front row seat at the cross. We want to see what's going on, and we want to be able to participate. This morning, I want us to slow down. I want us to slow down, and I just want us to simply listen to Jesus. I just want us to listen to him and get as close as we can possibly get so that we can feel the weight of his unstoppable prayer. You know, a lot has been made of the conversation that Jesus had with God on this night. And the majority of the tension usually rests and focuses on Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, where there in the garden, Jesus makes a request to the Father to intervene on the Son's behalf. 
And we have listened to Jesus say, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done and not mine. But did you know that before he spoke those words in Gethsemane, Jesus, well, he stopped just outside of the garden and he voiced what is his longest recorded prayer. We owe thanks to John for preserving it for us. You see, John doesn't get into what takes place within the garden and the agony that Jesus goes through. He leaves that to the other gospel writers. But John lets us know what was on Jesus' heart and mind as he walked toward his destiny. And so we're told in John chapter 17 that Jesus looked up to heaven and said, The time has come. I have brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed, I've revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. My prayer is not for the world, but for those that you have given me, because they belong to you. Jesus knows the time is near, and so he prays one final time for his followers. But he doesn't pray for their happiness, and he doesn't pray for their success. Instead, he prayed for their unity. Now I'm departing the world, he said in verse 11. They are staying in this world. But I am coming to you, Holy Father. And you have given me your name, so now protect them by the power of your name, so that they will be united just as we are. You see, Jesus wanted for his followers to enjoy what he had enjoyed with Father and Spirit. And he knows the next few days are going to be difficult. He knows that fear is going to lead to suspicion and, and doubt. He knows that one after another, they're going to scatter. And so he asks that they be protected so that they will not feel the urge to splinter and break. I mean, after all, this was a very eclectic group. Remember that you had Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they were all young, brash fishermen. Matthew had betrayed his countrymen by collecting taxes from an occupying force. And then there was Simon, who was part of a group that was determined to overthrow the occupying force. And there was Mary. And as Steve talked earlier, she had been possessed by multiple demons. You know, the little bit that we know about those early followers of Jesus, one thing is clear. They're really the only thing that they had in common with one another was Jesus. I mean, that's what they had. That's who they were. That's what held them together. And with Jesus about to be crucified and buried, it could be easy for them to turn their backs on one another. You know, parents, you, you guys understand, it is hard enough to get the kids to behave when you're watching them, right? I mean, but you turn your backs on them, and all of a sudden, you've got to pull this out, right? Look at this picture. All right, now, now how many of you guys have had one of these, right? Can, can I see a show of hands? Right? Anybody had to do that? None of you guys made one? Uh, any of you guys had to wear one? Well, I have a special one right here. All right? I've got our own very special get-along shirt. Okay? And we're going to see today exactly who needs to be wearing this shirt today. Right? So I'm just going to put this right here. All right? I'm just going to put it here. Let's see if that will stay. And it probably won't. I need my phone. Or how about your, your iPad? Awesome. Put that on there. Thanks, man. Yeah. All right. Now, if at any time you start to have some, 
you know, quarrels with anybody that might be here with you, you just come on up, take this, and put it on, and uh, we'll just, you know, we'll all work it out together. It'll be, it'll be fine. Uh, but, you know, Jesus prayed for, for harmony. Jesus prayed for the harmony of his, of his followers, but he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 20, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Now, now think about this. As Jesus prays for them, he's also praying for all those who are going to be coming who believe on that particular message, on their message. And this means that Jesus was also praying for you. And he was praying for you. And, and for those of you guys over here on the left and those of you guys who are up front, he was praying for me, for all who are going to believe in that message. And of all the lessons I think we can draw from this particular prayer, I don't want us to miss, I think, what is most important. Unity matters to Jesus. He doesn't just want his followers to wear a get-along t-shirt. He actually wants for his followers to get along. And he said, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why can't I be upset every once in a while or, or choose to separate myself from, from somebody else who is also a follower of Jesus? Well, Jesus earlier said to his disciples that all people will know that you are my followers if you love each other. Now, I want you to notice, Jesus did not say that his followers would be known by their gatherings, and this has been an awesome one this morning. He didn't say that his followers would be known by the sign that's out in front of their building or for their doctrine or for their biblical knowledge. We are known to be followers of Jesus by loving other followers of Jesus. That's how we're known to be disciples. And Jesus prayed that his future followers would be that way, would be one, so that, there's a reason for this, so that others would believe. You see, unity creates belief. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch. I really don't. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the key to reaching a lost world is unity among God's children. Unity among the, fam the family of God, the people of God. How is the world going to know that Jesus is God? It's not our doctrinal purity, and it's not our uplifting gatherings. The world will know that Jesus is God because the children of God get along. And now let's just admit it right here. Let's just admit that all you have to do is look at the way that we have fractured and divided ourselves throughout the centuries. All you have to do is look at that to understand that we sometimes have been our own worst enemies. Bill, or excuse me, Paul Billheimer wrote 40 years ago in his book Love Covers that the continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. And guys, I think that we all know individuals who have been turned away from Jesus because they witnessed believers in Jesus treating one another in un-Jesus ways. I think we've all experienced that. And I said that he wrote this 40 years ago, and we would love to be able to say, you know what, but the last 40 years have been awesome. And the last 40 years have been great. And the people of God have been connected, and the people of God have supported each other, and the people of God have not split and divided and argued. And... But we know that's not the case. 
And so the Apostle Paul pleaded with the Christians in Ephesus to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And you know that nowhere in Scripture does it say, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we are to build unity. It says that we are to labor to keep unity. Author Max Licato once wrote that unity does not have to be created, it simply needs to be protected. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we protect the unity that God has already gifted to the church? Well, for starters, we must learn to accept those whom Christ has accepted. Where there is faith, repentance, and a new birth, there is a child of God. And when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, man, he addressed a body of Christians that were guilty for every sin, from abusing the Lord's Supper to arguing about the Holy Spirit. And yet when you go to that particular letter, do you know how he begins that letter? He calls them brothers and sisters. When the church in Rome was debating whether to eat meat that was offered to idols, Paul didn't tell them to start two churches. One over here for the meat eaters and then one across town for the non-meat eaters. No, on the contrary. Instead, he wrote, Christ accepted you, so you should accept each other, which will bring glory to God. Friends, if a group of Jesus followers are attempting to introduce, introduce others to our Savior, and if there is a community where disciples, both new and old, can commit to faith, pray and praise and, and be encouraged and comforted, all the while making an impact among their neighbors and in their city, then they should receive our acceptance and joy. Now look, we may prefer different traditions and, and, and prefer one group over another when it comes to their practices, but we should be celebrating each and every outpost of faith, especially given the cultural climate that we currently find ourselves in. It does the cause of Christ no favors when the followers of Christ refuse to get along. You know, there was a study of more than 400 churches, and researchers were trying to determine what is the most divisive thing in churches. They're trying to figure out what is it that makes church people just get all hot under the collar. And with these 400 churches they surveyed, here's what they found out. Here was the number one thing that divided the body of Christ. Music or song style. Can you believe that? Now, now the second most divisive thing was the, the leadership organization and the style that was used by the leaders. The third most divisive issue was the use of the finances, how the church was spending the money. And then you kept reading the list and you found things like you know, proper worship attire and how you decorated the church facilities and what went in the lobby and what went in the sanctuary area. And you begin to look at that list, you go, wait a minute, these things aren't even in the Bible. <laughs> these things aren't even in the Bible and, and Christians are getting all upset about them. Christians have made something so sacred and important and yet they're not even found in Scripture. They're matters of opinion. They're matters of preference. And yet, they can oftentimes be the most divisive. Now understand, if a group of believers is theologically outside of orthodox historical doctrines, we don't celebrate that. But if a group of believers in Jesus who are different in tradition or size remain committed to the orthodox doctrines and his own mission, then we joyfully accept them. And, and to that end, let me just say something uh, about our own fellowship here. With our... We need to understand that there are no theologically liberal congregations among the churches of Christ in our fellowship. 
There are no congregations who deny the deity of Christ or the inspiration of Scripture. There are no congregations that question the atonement secured by Jesus on the cross or the subsequent power that was demonstrated by his resurrection. Our sister congregations believe in heaven and hell and each looks forward with hope to a triumphant return of Jesus. Now our fellowship might have different traditions and practices, but we don't have any who are outside the body of Christ. Whether within or outside our fellowship, we must accept those whom Christ has accepted. That's how we eagerly protect the unity of the Spirit. Secondly, to protect that unity, we need to guard against selfish pride. When you have division in a church or division in a family or division in any kind of relationship, at the heart of that division is self-promotion. It's a spirit of pride. And pride is what ultimately causes that separation to grow between individuals. And so James asked, do you know what causes your fights and arguments? He says, do you know where they come from? They come from the selfish desires that wage war within you. So think about for a minute what pride does. Pride makes me selfish. Pride says, well, I deserve to get what I want. And it puts my needs ahead of others. And pride makes me argumentative. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10 says, pride only breeds quarrels. And some of the most pointed disagreements and divisions are are less about who's right and, and who's wrong They're more often or not about who's going to win and who's going to have the last word. Pride also makes me opinionated. It makes me think that my way is the best way. And if I think a certain way, then surely everyone else must think that way because that's that's what I think. And did you know that pride can make you defensive? It does that for me. If someone disagrees with me, even on an insignificant issue, pride can take it personally. Can't believe you'd say that to me. And pride also makes me prejudiced. It makes me intolerant of others. It makes me not want to be around people who are different from me. That's pride. And friends, if that's in you, and if that's in me, then God is not proud of that behavior. You see, the church was never meant to be a place of of uniformity. There's no testimony in that. A bunch of people who are exactly alike getting along. That's not what God called for. He asked for there to be unity. It's a place for pride swallowers and Christ followers. That's the power of our testimony. That's the power of the cross. People who come together and are, and are with one another because they really don't have a lot of other things in common. But you know what? They've got the most important thing in common because they have Jesus in common. And what Jesus has done for them is what unites them. Jesus gave his very life for the unity of the church. But guys, understand, ultimately, unity is a choice. Unity is a choice. Every day, we choose whether or not Jesus, that unstoppable prayer that he prayed, is going to be ours. Now, I think the church is at its best when it pursues pursues the biblical version and vision and value of unity and diversity. Guys, our world is being ripped apart by racial and ethnic and ideological differences. We see it in our politics. We feel it in our families. It has been ingrained in many of our traditions. And sadly, there are Christians who have reinforced these various divides. I think that there are some people who actually, I think some people actually come to church and and they come looking for people to disagree with. They're looking for something sometimes they don't like and then it causes division. Now, I remember as a teenager, 
We used to play this game. You might be familiar. It's a great Christian fun. It was called Slug Bug. Remember that game? Maybe you called it Punch Bug. In fact, some of you just reached over and you did, didn't you? Yeah, you reached over and, and you punched the person that was beside you. Because the game kind of went like this. You, you saw a, uh, a BW bug that was driving around and, and then you got to punch the person that was there next to you. Now, there were rules. You couldn't just haul off and slap them across the face. You couldn't go all Will Smith on them, all right? No? It, is it too soon? I'm sorry. All right. No, you... You, you, hit him in the, you hit him in the shoulder, you hit him in the, in the leg or something like that. And so off we're going and we're going to youth retreats and we're headed to Bible camp. And now, now some, some good, wise, learned adult would try to refocus our attention on love and goodwill. Someone would be asked to read a Bible verse or maybe we would start to sing a song together. But in between the devotion and in between the prayers, we'd play this game. And I mean, we were just looking for reasons to hit each other. We were. It was really fun. And guys, if we are not careful, the same thing can happen within our Christian communities. I mean, we come together, we read our Bibles, we pray together, we sing songs of praise, and, and then we start looking around the auditorium or we start looking across town for someone that we don't agree with so that we can just hit them. Oh, we don't go and punch them in the shoulder. But we will turn a cold shoulder to someone. We don't mind doing that. And we don't bruise them with our fist. We'll just cut them with our tongue. At best, we refuse to worship with them. We'll start our church over here. You start your church over there. At best. At worst, we question if they're even faithful to God. And friends, if that's you, if it's me, I mean, if you're bent on dividing the body of Christ because something isn't the way that you want or because another Christian holds a different belief or opinion or because there is another group of Jesus followers that have a different worship style or a different practice or a different tradition, then can I ask you to stop allowing your preference to be more important than God's mission? Jesus prayed for unity so that the world would believe that he had been sent by God. So who needs to join you in a get-along shirt? Who needs, to, who needs to wear one with you? Is it the person who enjoys meeting with another denomination across the road or across town? Is it the family who left us to meet with another congregation within our fellowship? How about the young woman whom God has gifted for ministry? The older man who always wears a suit or the young man who doesn't own a suit? Is it the couple who speak Spanish? Is it the black man, the white woman? Is it the Fox fan or the CNN champion? Is it the person that's on your left or the person that is to your right? Is it the traditionalist, the progressive? Who do you need to accept because Christ has accepted them? Maybe it's somebody in your extended family. Maybe it's someone in this church family. Guys, as Jesus walked the road to resurrection, we were on his mind. 
We were. He spent his final hours praying for us. That we and all others who believed him to be the son of God would be one. That we would be united. Because unity matters to Jesus. And that's because unity creates belief. Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed for unity, understand, not so that we could have nice, tranquil meetings, but because he wanted others to witness the power of God in action. Unity is a means to an end. Jesus did not pray for unity for unity's sake. He prayed for unity for mission's sake. Because a divided world needs to see a united church. So my prayer, my prayer is that Jesus' unstoppable prayer will be our unceasing pursuit. That we will accept one another. And that we will accept all who bow before the Savior and who wholly depend on his saving grace. And that we will do this so that at least one more or two more or three more or all those the Lord our God shall call will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Will you join me in prayer? Father, you, you heard a prayer for us so long ago. As your son, when he, was, when he was expecting the cross, when he was anticipating resurrection, stopped, and as we said, he didn't go and preach a sermon. He didn't, he didn't look for others to heal one last miracle to perform. Instead, he stopped and he said, I want my followers to be one. He prayed for unity. He prayed for unity for those who were with him there that night because of the pressure that would come upon them to, to scatter and divide in the hours to come. And he prayed for the unity of those who would come later, the next year, the next century. And all throughout time, those who would believe that you sent Jesus, the prayer was that those individuals would be one and that they would not allow the world to divide them. They would not allow their pride to get in, to get in the way of the mission. That there would be acceptance one of another. That there would be encouragement drawn from finding others of like precious faith. Father, I ask that Jesus prayer, I ask that that prayer be lived out in this place. That we would learn better what it means to, to fellowship one another, that we would understand what acceptance is truly all about. I pray that our pride would be swallowed, that it would be thrown away, that it would be overcome by your spirit. So that the relationships that we have, not just within these walls, but in our community and in our city, that those relationships would be strengthened. That we would be able to better raise up the arms of other brothers and sisters. Encourage them in their walk. Father, it can be easy for us to, to withdraw. It can be so easy for us to, to shrink back and to 
to start forming our own little circles. But as we talked last week, allow us to throw open the doors. Allow us to turn over the tables, Father. Allow us to be a people that are united. Allow us to keep the mission first and foremost. That we would desire more than anything else for someone else to come to a belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Father, allow the unity that is present here be a beacon to those who are searching, who are struggling, who are looking. Allow the way in which we love one another and the way in which we love others who call you Lord. Draw, draw to you men, women, and children who right now are divided internally, who are struggling because of the sin that is present in their life. Father, may we be one just as you are one with Son and Spirit, so that the world might know that you sent a Savior. It's in the name of that Savior that we pray and ask this prayer. Amen. Guys, these last few weeks, we have had some hard lessons. We've talked about some difficult things. We've shared some things that have have been very pointed, and, and we have talked about some things that that maybe we haven't talked about in a while or or shared. But we have done so because these were things that Jesus focused on during that last week. We have done so because this is where Jesus chose to to focus our attention. And I pray that as you've been walking this road of resurrection with Jesus, that, that you yourself have seen a renewed sense of purpose, that you've realized, you know what, I need to be using my talents for the honor and glory of God, and I don't need to let anything stand in that way. That you have began to feel more passionate about the fact, you know what, we don't need to put barriers in place of people who are, who are coming to the Lord, and, and we do need to turn over some tables every once in a while and say, you know what, things need to change and things need to be different. And that we need to be a, we need to be, to be a people that are, that are constantly, that are constantly lifting up others in the name of Jesus Christ. And that we need to be a people who are constantly looking for others, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we can, we can join with them in the good work that God is already doing through them. But through all of these messages, they've all been leading us, just as Jesus was, they've all been leading us to a cross. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, then you must take up your cross, you must follow me. And understand, taking up a cross does not mean there's some burden that you have to bear. Taking up your cross means that you're willing to go and to die, and you're willing no longer to live for yourself. Instead, you're going to live for God. And just as God promised the resurrection of Jesus, he promises your own resurrection. And so if these lessons have been leading you in a difficult, to a difficult place, Don't turn away and don't put the cross down. Instead, you go and you be there with Jesus in that moment, knowing that your resurrection is around the corner. It's a great time of year. It's a time of year that we remember the power that comes with the resurrection. We'll talk about that next week. But before the resurrection comes, there's a death that has to take place. And maybe you need to have that death take place in your life today where you die to yourself, where you're baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins because you believe in the one that God sent. We would love to celebrate that with you today. We would love to rejoice as you are baptized into Christ so that you might be raised to walk in a new life. Guys, there's somebody in your family 
There's somebody perhaps in this church. There's somebody in this community. There's somebody at work. There's somebody at school that you need to get along with for the sake of the mission of God. I'm not going to ask you to put on a shirt, but I am going to ask you to put on Christ and to carry Christ with you wherever you go this week and allow the love that you show another brother or sister to be what draws others to Jesus. Will you be on that mission with me? Let's stand and give God praise.